Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. Jesus said, more blessed are you than Mary if you hear and do the Word of God. This should be our desire, so that we can know Him more, so we can walk with Him, so we can have a relationship with Him. We're not just studying the Bible to get to know the details of the Bible, but because the details of the Bible bring us into a deeper relationship with God. Now, if you have a question, uh, you can enter that question by uh, writing the word question in the comment section, writing out your question, reread it to make sure that it makes sense, and then adding your references that you may have. Uh, try to give exact references instead of like, you know, Isaiah 45 and 46. Um, Give me the exact place where it is. Um, That way I'll be able to pull it up, but I can't read through a couple chapters to try to find the exact place. And um, our first question today comes from our study that we're doing tonight. Uh, We are in the middle of a study on the life of David on Wednesday nights. In fact, we just started it last week where we saw him anointed as a shepherd boy. And at the end of that, there's a contrast between David and Saul. So let me go ahead and bring this up. I've got it in my in my um, Strong's Concordance because I want to look up a couple of words uh, that are here. So, first of all, um, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, which were seven older brothers, by the way. Interesting dynamic for that household. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the Spirit of God comes upon David, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So there's a contrast here. The Spirit comes upon David, and at this point, the Spirit leaves Saul. Now, the Spirit of God leaves Saul because Saul is rebellious, um, and he's been told by Samuel to to, the, the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. He is disobedient to God. He doesn't want to keep God's word. And so finally, the Spirit of the Lord leaves. Now, I don't believe today that the Spirit of the Lord can leave us in that way. Um, but I do believe that the, the influence or effectiveness of the Spirit in our lives, the, the less rebellion and the less disobedience we have towards God, the more influence the Spirit is going to be able to have because the Spirit can't be in our lives with this great influence. But the real thing here is that it goes on to say, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, this troubles us because we read it and we go, an evil spirit from the Lord, is God in cahoots with demons and telling them, hey, I need you to go and do something for me? It's, it seems like that's not right. It seems like God wouldn't use an evil spirit, a demonic spirit to do such a thing. First of all, I don't know that we have to read this as a demonic spirit. an evil spirit from the Lord. First of all, let's take a look at this word uh, evil. That's why I've got it up on uh, my strongs here. So the word is raw and it comes, uh, it can mean bad or evil, uh, natural or moral, adversity, affliction, calamity, uh, uh, displease, distress. So the New King James Version says a distressing spirit from the Lord. Uh, a, um, I think the ESV uses the term um, harmful spirit from the Lord. So the question is, do we ever see angels doing anything like that would harm humans? The answer to that is yes. We have the death angel that passes over Egypt. We've got angels in the Bible that end up killing people in, in battles. So, yes, so this doesn't necessarily need to be a, an evil spirit. It's a distressing spirit. It could be a harmful spirit. The word often here is translated, and let's go back to the word again here, and you can see how it's translated in different places. So, you can see here that it's translated uh, a sore, wicked, affliction, uh, against an evil, all evil, um, all the evil. So, um, most of the time, it's, it's, there, there's bad. Most of the time, there's afflicted. Um, so, most of the time, it's translated evil, but it's got these, trans, these, these ideas in it of being afflicted by it. So, could a spirit from the Lord be sent to afflict Saul? Now, Saul is chosen. Um, it's interesting, Saul's name means called for. And Saul's chosen by God 
to be a king and to lead the people of Israel. He's given this high position and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he turns that position into self-seeking. The Bible tells us that we're not to do anything out of selfish ambition. So Saul's now seeking his own way and he's not interested in doing the things that God wants him to do anymore. He declares that he's done it to Saul, then done the will of God, but he hasn't done it at all. And he's in complete and total rebellion. And so, um, God troubles him, sends a spirit to trouble him. This could be, this could be an angel doing the work of God to trouble him. Now, is there anywhere in the Bible where God works with a demonic spirit to interact in someone's life? And the answer to that is yes. We find that in the book of Job. We see how Satan is numbered among the sons of God who are angels and presents himself before God. And God says, where you been? He says, I've been going back and forth upon the earth. And God says, did you consider my servant Job? So God brings him up. And he says, well, Job only serves you because you protect him. Take your protection away, take your blessings away, and he won't serve you. And so God says, okay, you can take his blessings away, but don't take his life. Or don't touch him, don't make him sick. And then later on he says, you can make him sick, but you can't take his life. So God uses Satan in order to do a work inside of Job's life. And it's interesting, we still don't know exactly why God did that. <clears throat> to show us things probably, to work in our lives, but God was doing something in Job that we don't know exactly what that is really about. So, could this be an event where God is working in a, in a passive way? because he didn't go and tell Satan to do it. Satan is doing what Satan wants to do when the protection of God over a certain area of Job's life is taken away. So he isn't actively commanding Satan to go and attack Job, but he is passively allowing him to do it. So Satan came from the presence of the Lord. So it could be said that Satan came from the Lord to trouble Job, just like this verse says here. So. Yeah, we have those two options, that it could be a distressing angel, or it could be God in a passive way backing off, and an evil spirit tormenting him. And both of these fit into the biblical narrative, and there's no reason for us to think that God is somehow controlling, working with demons. That's, that's not the picture that we're seeing here. I don't think that's what, um, what God was trying to, to get at at all here, but the real issue and what we can really learn from this is that we don't want to be, we, we've been called. Saul was called to be king. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're called as well. We're given everything. Saul was given everything. Saul is a king who becomes disobedient and rebellious. And if we, as the children of God, are disobedient and rebellious, then is the Spirit of God going to be really influential in our lives? Now, I don't want to get to whether or not the Holy Spirit could be taken away from us. I lean strongly on the side that it can't be. But I also believe that if you are disobedient and rebellious, that God's not going to influence your life greatly. And I think that you, you reduce <clears throat> the work of the Spirit inside of your life, even if you are a genuine Christian. Because genuine Christians obviously can be disobedient and can be rebellious. And that's why we constantly check our hearts. That's why we meditate before him. That's why we say, search our hearts, O God. Reveal if there's anything evil in here, because it can, there can be self-deception. All right, so um, let's see. I want to, what do I want to do here? Um, all right, there we go. So we have a question from Jari. Let me go ahead and um, go ahead and get a back over here. There we go. And we have a question from uh, Jari. Uh, Jari says, question, I'm skeptical. I was at a conference. Pastor said his son was dying at three and God showed him a vision <clears throat> of his son healthy at 27 years later and it came to pass. Can you do anything? Can you do anything but? Um, so Jari, I'm not sure what the question, can you do anything but? Um, so you're just you're skeptical that this pastor you're skeptical that this pastor told this story and whether or not God really spoke to him and showed him that. 
Um, I think the way that we that we handle these things, I'm generally a skeptical person as well, Jari. I find myself, when people will tell me something, like I saw an angel, I've had people tell me that before, and I find myself saying in my head, no, you didn't. <clears throat> or God spoke to me, and I find myself going, eh, I'm not sure God, God really spoke to you. So I'm, I'm generally a skeptical person. However, love believes all things. And so we don't have to judge everything someone says that speaks of the supernatural. We might have those feelings within ourselves, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just the way that we're responding. And some of us are, are more trusting and some of us are more skeptical. But when it comes to judging those individuals, we don't have to judge them. So we can say, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave that alone. I'm just gonna leave that for the Lord. And, and if God showed him that, then fantastic. If God did that for him, then great. Um, I have had God speak to me, not audibly, but I know it was God speaking to me. And so I think that's really important for us to understand and, um, and not be really judgmental. All right, Jari, if you have a follow-up, <clears throat> I would love to go ahead and take that. Um, we have a question here from Kay. Uh, Fox Kay says, an, uh, a, Orthodox, a Orthodox was saying, they believe everything as Christians except that they are saved. Continually striving to be saved as they do move closer to Jesus. At death, judgment will tell if they are saved forever. So, I'm not really familiar with what, uh, what I, I'm, I'm going to assume it's Greek Orthodox that you're talking about. So you've got Russian Orthodox, you've got Greek Orthodox. Um, and it, it sounds like what they're talking about here is a works-based religion where um, you're just trying to do the best you can and you cross your fingers and you hope that in the end it's good. And I think this is obviously problematic for what the Bible teaches. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. If we believe, then we will be saved. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him. Does this say whoever lives a good enough life or whoever does enough things for God? And we'll see in the end. So what you explain here, what you spell out is never said in scripture. Judgment will tell the saved, um, tell it's saved forever. It never says that. The Bible never says, do your best, go out and do, do the work for God, and then one day you'll find out. <clears throat> the Bible says the opposite. Whoever believes in him, it, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The Bible even tells us by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, then you don't love him. You're, you're lying, and the truth isn't in you. And so we can evaluate, okay, I'm, I, I want to do what God's word will is. We know the same passage, the same book that tells us that, 1 John, also tells us that there's no one without sin. That if someone says they don't have any sin, they're lying. So we know that we, that we sin. We know that we need God's grace. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we want to keep in that proper place with him, but we also keep his commandments. It doesn't mean we always keep his commandments, but it means we keep them. And so as a Christian, if I don't want to keep God's commandments, then that's a revelation that I need to call out upon his name and truly be transformed and truly be saved. So all, all they're doing when this works-based religion and other ones all they're doing is putting the cart before the horse. They're saying works can save you when works can never save you because you can never be good enough to, if you've already sinned, you've already fallen short of the glory of God. If you miss the law in one point, you miss the law in all of the points. So we will end up being judged. And this is never said and goes against it. We, we do believe that we have to do the things that Jesus commands because once we get saved, he's our Lord and Savior. And once he's your Lord and Savior, what are you going to do? You got to do the things that he's called you to do. All right. So thank you very much. Okay. I appreciate that. And we have, let's see, we have a follow-up, <clears throat> follow-up here from Jari. Jari says, follow-up, why did God call, 
call King Saul a Jeroboam if he knew they were going to rebel? Why did God call Saul and Jeroboam if he knew that he was going to rebel? <clears throat> so Jeroboam was a servant of, of, of um, Solomon, whose son Rehoboam was so prideful, he lost the nation of Israel. The 10 tribes of Israel broke away and followed Jeroboam. Jeroboam ended up leading them. He was afraid that, he was afraid that, that the 10 tribes were gonna go to Jerusalem and give their allegiance to Rehoboam. And so he made two golden calves and told them, this is the God that led you out of, out of Israel. And they began to, to worship these golden calves in Dan and in Bethel. I've been at the site of the golden calf in Dan. The altar is there. The remains of the altar is there. And I've, I've stood around it. The last time we were there, we were getting ready to do some worship. And I thought, you know what? Let's not do worship here. Because this is where this is where they rebelled against the Lord, and just talked about the rebellion. Now we know the story with Saul. Uh, Saul starts off good, and then slowly becomes just disobedient and rebellious, and and he deteriorates. And it's a picture when we rebel against God and disobey that we deteriorate. So the question specifically about these two is: Hey, God gives people free choice. And God can choose individuals who can make a decision to go one way or another. I believe Saul could have gone a different direction. I, be I believe Judas could have gone a different direction. The reason that God foretold what would happen and he played that role is because he played that role and God knew it because God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He knows all things. So he tells us things that happen before they happen. But that doesn't mean that Saul didn't have a free cho freedom of choice. And so God called him. Now you're wondering why God doesn't overlook Saul and then maybe go to someone who wouldn't fail. Because God's got things to teach us, because God's using the situation in people's lives to show us through the word of God. Uh, God does things in our lives. Why has God chosen us when we make decisions to rebel? And so those are the kind of questions that we can have. And I don't know that they can be completely answered. You know, why questions are always hard to answer what, you know, who, when, where, a lot easier, why? Now you're trying to get into the mind of God, which is as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. We don't know why God does the things that he does, but God gives men choices. And we see the choices that he made in calling Saul and, and, and choosing Jeroboam. And they could, have, they could have done great things for God. I really believe that. We have another question here from Empress Kimberly. Uh, Kimberly says, follow up, the passage does say an evil spirit from the Lord. Could you explain that again? It can't mean that God sent an evil spirit, can it? Well, let's think about it, Kimberly, again. Let's go back to, is there anywhere in the Bible where God, where a spirit comes from God to do something destructive in the life of a believer or even a non-believer for that matter? The answer to that is yes, in the book of Job where you've got Satan who, who goes before God and, and through a conversation, God passively, God doesn't tell him to go and do these things. Satan challenges God and God says, I'm gonna take my protection away from him, but you can't, you can't, you can't harm, you can't have his health later on, you can't kill him, right? So in a passive way, Satan was sent from the Lord into Job's life. And I realize I'm, I'm explaining this again. Um, hopefully, so could God have passively removed his spirit, allowing an evil spirit to torment him? God didn't tell the evil spirit, go and torment him. So you don't have God in cahoots with evil spirits. All right, and, and I did um, explain all of this back up in the beginning. So um, the word evil, and maybe you just missed that, um, Kimberly, and you can go back and watch it later. But the word evil, um, the, the New King James calls it distressed. And the, um, let me see what the ESV calls it. Um, the ESV says a harmful. So the, the ESV says, let me put this up here for you. So this is the ESV. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Kimberly, I also talked about how this could be 
how this could be an angel who is who is harming him because the word raw doesn't only mean evil it can mean harmful or it can mean distress and he's in distress all right so um so thank you i appreciate that kimberly we have a question from k uh again k says do they believe that the holy spirit comes and goes how how do people explain the idea once saved but not always saved all right so do do the orthodox so i i assume you're following up from your question so do orthodox greek orthodox russian orthodox believe that the spirit comes and goes again i'm not familiar with <clears throat> i'm not really familiar with their theology so i don't know what it is but we believe today there's a debate among christians right as to whether or not a genuine christian can truly apostatize and become a non-believer I lean heavily on the side that says, when you are a genuine Christian, then you're going to remain a genuine Christian. Now, every once in a while, I come across passages that cause me to kind of take a little bit of a wince and check it and say, well, you know what? Especially in Galatians, um, Romans has a couple of them that um, passages like, if you are trusting in the law, then Christ's sacrifice means nothing to you. So as I said, he, Hebrews as well has some passages that look like this, that, that I'm not at 100%, but I said I lean heavily on that you can't, you can't lose your salvation. But it doesn't, really, it doesn't really matter because, and I've always said that this argument doesn't matter. Some people saying you can't lose your salvation, some people saying you can't. Because the people who believe that you can leave your salvation, if a person apostatizes and now becomes a devil worshiper. I'm, I'm going to go to the extreme to make a point. Now it becomes a devil worshiper. Then the person who believes you can lose your salvation believes that he was saved and he lost it and he's unsaved and needs to be saved. The person who believes you can't lose your salvation will say of this guy who's now a devil worshiper that he never was saved because if you're genuinely saved, you wouldn't walk away. So the evidence that he walked away proves that he was never really saved. And so both of them agree on more than they disagree on. They agree that the guy's unsaved. One saying he was never saved, the other saying he was genuinely saved. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Uh, John MacArthur had someone on staff who apostatized and walked away. And John MacArthur, who firmly believes in one saved, always saved, is a Calvinist, um, not reformed by the way, but Calvinist. And he, he just said the guy never, never knew the Lord. That's that's how they deal with it. The reality is, no matter what you believe, this guy is unsaved and needs to be saved. Now, does believing that you cannot lose your salvation, does that affect you in other ways? I think so. I think, number one, if you misunderstand it, you can think, well, I'm already saved. This happened with a girl that I knew when I was in high school. Uh, she was dating a friend of mine. Uh, they were had, had entered into a, a, a sinful relationship, weren't going to church, were just together, involved sexually. And I had said to her, well, you know, how are you, inter how are you interacting with God, being fully backslidden? And she said, I, I, I got saved. I raised my hand. So I, I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. And so now she's living apart from God, believing that once she's saved, she's always saved. But like I talk about, the sign that you're genuinely saved is that you're doing the things that God called you to do. So can we say that she was genuinely saved? Had another family member who was part of the Church of Christ and they believed in baptism. And they would say, he would say, I am, I'm, I'm saved, I got baptized. But there was no evidence of any general, uh, of any genuine relationship with God in his life. Zero. I would say interacting with him that he didn't know the Lord, but he thought he did. So thinking that some work's going to save you and you do that work and now you're saved, or thinking that once saved, always saved, can be dangerous in the sense of, mis of misunderstanding what it would mean. Now, it can also give you confidence. People say, 
Well, when you say that it's possible that someone could lose their salvation, because I believe that it is possible that that's the correct way, people will say, well, you're stealing people's assurance. I'm really not. Because anybody who walks away and apostatizes is going to be considered to be unsaved by either one of them. In fact, the assurance is continuation. You continue with Christ, and that's the assurance. Those who endure to the end will be saved. So how do you show that you're genuinely saved? You endure to the end. And what if you don't endure to the end? Were you ever saved? So as I said, they both believe the same thing. Hopefully that's helpful. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from uh, Sharon. Sharon says, question, what was the reason Jesus wanted to hide that he was God when he started out in ministry? I don't know that Jesus was hiding that he was God. He came on the scene <clears throat> and he began doing miracles. One of his first miracles was in the city of Capernaum where he said to a man who was paralyzed had been let down through the roof was to forgive his sins and then heal him from being lame. And he says, so that you would know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, pick up your bed and walk. So the, the Pharisees who were there said, why does he say this? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And they were right. No one can forgive sins but God. And so Jesus revealed who he was almost immediately. And he continued to do that. When he's out on the ocean, or excuse me, the Sea of Galilee, not the ocean, the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> the ocean of Galilee, he says, um, winds be still in the midst of a storm. And the, 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 the boat suddenly comes to a stop. And they say, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, which is the name of God. The name of God is I am. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old. How can, how can you be before Abraham? And he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. They picked up stones to kill him. And he said, for what good work do you want to kill me for? And they say, we don't stone you for any good work because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood it clearly. So Jesus did not hide the fact that he was God, but he didn't say he was God either, which I think is really the point of your question. Why didn't Jesus come out and say, <clears throat> listen, I'm God, all right? So you guys all need to serve and follow me because a lot of people say they're God. Think of how many people today say they're God. And anyone in the New Age movement is going to say that they're God. There, there is something called <clears throat> the Jerusalem effect, where their people go to Jerusalem and say that they're Jesus or say that they're God. And so crazy people claim that they're God. And so Jesus never did. And people say, well, that's proof that he wasn't God. No, he was waiting for others to recognize him. <clears throat> The Bible says, well, your own lips aren't to praise you. And the recognition of him being the Messiah or being God coming from others is extremely important. Like Thomas, who after the resurrection and Jesus appears to him, Thomas fell down on the ground and, and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. Now, when Cornelius fell down before Peter and worshiped him, Peter said, don't do that. When John fell down before an angel twice in the book of Revelation and started to worship him, the angel said, don't do that. But when Thomas falls down before Jesus <clears throat> and calls him my Lord and my God, then he is, uh, he, he is not rebuked. So there's a, a, a revelation over time that he is God. Now Hebrews 1 tells us that he's God as well. He quotes the Old Testament. To which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God, your God, has anointed you. So God calls the son God. And we know that Jesus is the son of God. All right. <clears throat> so hopefully that is helpful, Sharon. If you have another question, then go ahead. Um, if you have another question about it or didn't clarify it completely, then go ahead and ask a follow-up. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. So um, we have another question from Abishag. 
Abishag says, Hebrews 6, 7, Melchizedek. Do you know who this is? 7, 3, but resembling the Son of God. Is this Jesus or... <clears throat> and this is... Um, this is... Let me go to Hebrews. I'm going to go there now. Um, this is a, a controversial issue, like so many others, whether or not this is God. And all I can do is give you what I believe, and you're going to have to, to make an end to it yourself. So I've got my, my Bible doing something funky here. When I get to the passage, it scrolls back down. So let me see if this is going to do it again. I might need to bail out of this one today. Right, okay, so let's just go here and see if I can do this. So, um, yeah, let's just start from verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him and to Abraham. So here, that's the funky thing it does. I don't know what it's doing. Um, See um, how great this man was, whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi, who received priestly offerings, have a commandment in the law to take the tithes. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna bail out of this, and I'll just I'll just talk about it. Um, so, um, Abishag, um. So, um, Keith, you might need to keep the questions starred because I have no way to remove them. Uh, we've got a new system here. Got to get out of that. We've got a new system here. Um, so, um, without bringing in another question. Uh, so, um, Melchizedek, it says, does have generation, does have genealogy. No father, we didn't father or mother. So, people will say that Melchizedek um, was not Jesus. He shows up with bread and wine. Um, to bless Abraham. He blesses Abraham. Abraham blesses him. Jesus is going to become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek is superior by him blessing Abraham and all of the Levites being basically inside of Abraham receive the blessing from Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High. And so Jesus is a, is a priest by the order of Melchizedek. And so... Um, some will say that he was just a, he was just a person. He was a type of Christ, and um, he represented Jesus, and that Jesus is um, is with him. Others will say that because it says he has no genealogy, no mother and father, that that's saying that he is Jesus in in the flesh. And you're going to find people who will take stands both ways on this. Um, the more conservative individual, and I say conservative in a kind of a strange way here. Um, People can approach the scriptures and be more conservative, and they're going to take the more natural view more often than the supernatural view. So the more natural view would be that Melchizedek was a person who represented Christ. He was a true priest of God, and that Jesus is a priest at the order of Melchizedek. Then there's the view that this was Jesus. This was an incarnation uh, or, or a, Christ, um, uh, a Christophany, a Christ appearance in the Old Testament. We do know that the angel of the Lord is Christ. We know that Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. So we do have them. And um, I, I lean towards this uh, Melchizedek being Jesus. And I don't think there's any way for us to know for sure. There's so many good people on both sides that look at it and go a different direction. So I realize that was a lot of talking to kind of bail out at the end. But... I don't know that that we can be 100% for sure. All right? So, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, um, Chris, if you would, I mean, Chris, um, Keith, if you would keep um, up Kay's question so that if I need to remove it, I can remove it. All right? Thank you. Um, so, Kay says, when anyone denies or doesn't understand the Trinity, but they pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is it okay to mention they said singular name but spoke of three. So, the teaching of the Trinity, K, is that God is one in essence and three in persons. So, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. 
and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not God. So that, that the Bible teaches that all three are, are God, but the Bible teaches that they're all three distinct. This is why modalism is bad, because they make God to be the same person. You've got the Spirit, the Son talking to the Spirit, and the Spirit talking to, to the Father, and they're both one in God. Now, this is really hard for us to grasp, and we have a lot of trouble with it, but it's, it's, it's okay to say that God is three in one. That's all right to say. Um, God in three persons, right? The old, the old hymn, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And um, it's okay to say that. So, um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so it's just, it's just three in one. So you've just got, and I see, I see this statement here that the name, it doesn't say the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the name. And so we just got, we've got the Trinity here. We've got the name being singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So yeah, you can say name. I mean, you can say name to try to explain to them. And I think that's what you're asking, okay? Is to explain to them what the, what the Trinity is. Uh, whether or not we get it, I don't know. I think that, that we can uh, get to the place, we, uh, we can get to the place where um, we trust it. But to really, to have anything on earth that's like it, people try all kinds of analogies to, you know, an egg, you got the shell, the white, the yolk, <clears throat> you've got, but that's not like it. I mean, they're all three an egg, and they're all three parts of an egg, but all three of them don't have the same essence. Um, it can maybe help you start to understand it. A clover, right? It's got three distinct um, petals on it, but it's one thing. So these can help us maybe start to get a grasp on it. But God isn't an egg. God isn't a clover. God isn't a pizza that melted back together again. Um, God is none of these things. It's much deeper than that. So we strive to really grasp it and understand it. All right? Thank you, Kay. I appreciate that. I think that that's, um, I think that's a good argument. That in the name not names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so Daniel says, not sure if this passage was brought up for God using possibly evil spirits. First King, First Kings. Oh, man, I don't know. You know, what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my. I'm going to go to my Strong's Concordance uh, because my Bible is messing up, and I'll go to First uh, Kings 22, and we'll read it in the King James. It might be a little bit funky in the King James. <clears throat> So 1 Kings 22, verses 19 through 23. All right, let me get there, and I'll put this up on the screen for you, and let's read it. So we're, we're back talking again about the evil spirit from the Lord, or the distressing spirit, or the harmful spirit from the Lord um, on Saul. Okay? And so here in verse 19 in 1 Kings 22, which is where we needed to be, right? It says... Let me go ahead and just pull this down so we can see this better. There we go. It says, And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and the host of heaven standing at the right and on the left. And the Lord said, Who shall we persuade, how shall we persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramah, Gilead? And one said, In this manner. And another said, In that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Where, wherewith, and he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail, and go forth, and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. Yeah, that's a, that's a great passage. Um, Daniel it um, it brings up all kinds of new questions, right? Um, we have here what we call a, a heavenly council passage. There are several passages in the Bible where God is together with, with angels, spirits, and they help rule. Remember when God made Adam and Eve? He put them in the garden, and he said that he gave them dominion, over the earth, go forth and, and have take dominion over the earth. So man was created 
to rule the earth with God. And it's believed that angels were created to be a council with God. So God wants to share his, his rule with us. And we become, we sit, on, we sit on, on, on thrones and rule with him, or we sit on his throne and rule with him. So God wants to rule with us. And so this is a heavenly council passage. Um, this passage brings up a lot more questions. Like, then we have a lying spirit coming from the Lord. And lying is deceptive. And it, God's not the one who's lying, but God sends forth the spirit that says they'll lie. And again, is this a good spirit who's, who's lying and deceiving? Seems like this would be an evil spirit who's lying and deceiving instead of a good spirit. So yeah, I think that this is a good passage, uh, Daniel, to, uh, to talk about you know, this with, but it does bring up a lot of questions when you go to this passage, um, but it's a good one. And I think it really does help us to see that we've got another, this is another event. I think this spirit would be a demonic spirit, but the question would be, why would a demonic spirit be on the heavenly council? And maybe this is a passive thing like, like it was with Satan and Job, where God said, I'm going to go ahead and with, we remove my protection. God did, and now he could go. And so God removes the protection so that the lying spirit can go and do these things. All right? There, um, certainly all of the questions are not answered in these. All right? So thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that. So uh, <clears throat> Jari says, follow-up, um, was it God's will to ask for a king or not? Israel had no king and did what was right in his own eyes. Then later on, Israel has a king and still does. What is, uh, what is right in their own, what is right in their own eyes? So, yeah, no, God did not want them to have a king. God was their king, and God led them. And when they got into the land, they rebelled, and each one did what was right in his own eyes. That's what you're making the reference to judges. They turned away from their king, and they rebelled against him. And God raised up judges that may be able to come alongside of them and help them. Um, but, um, in the beginning, God did not want to have a king. So God allowed them to have a king as a concession because they asked for a king. Then God gave them one, but God in the law had put when you, when, when kings rule over you because God knew that they were going to rule over them. And so God had told them what kings could, can, and cannot do. So, and we also know that there's another concession in the law, which is, is divorce. God didn't want you divorced to divorce, but because of the hardness of your heart, God allowed it. So God gave concessions to people even in the law. So just because something's in the law doesn't mean it's the way that God wanted it because the law has concessions in it. And so sometimes we can look and see where these concessions come up and where they are. All right. So thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. Um, so we have another question from Abishag. Abishag says, uh, on Bible study, not just reading as a daily devotion task, but really studying, diving in to learn and to stand firm on the word, is there a good study uh, you would recommend? Um, for, for Bible study, um, I, I think that you have to develop um, I don't know of I don't know of any guided Bible study of of anything like there's guided devotions that will help you you know will help you go through the process of interacting with God and uh, you can get those on U uh, Version Bible uh, so there are guided prayers um, guided devotionals um, or guided quiet times that are out there but nothing like a, a guided study we have to learn how to dive in for ourselves. And um, that, that just takes some time. And I think that Abishag, you can do that. Um, you, you have to, and, and, and looking at people that really know how to dive in, to do research, and to really come up with it. So um, I can just tell you that when I'm diving into a passage, one of the first things that I do is I will find <clears throat> two or three topics in that passage. And then I will go and, uh, to, um, uh, and I'll type in something like, like today I did a study on music. I wanted to find out what the Bible said about music. So I dove in and I typed in, what does the Bible say about music? 
and then an open Bible, it comes up and gives all these passages in the Bible that talk about music. And then I'll go to those passages and then I'll use cross-references to go from the passages. So I'll use actually two phones. I have one phone that will have the cross-references on it, another phone that I can look up the passages on so that I can go back and forth and look even closer. So it's just getting your system down of being able to dive in and to, to look at scripture and then building on that. That that brings you in to study God's word, how to really dive in and study his word. Um, I'll just give you a few suggestions as to what you should have on hand to really dive in well. Um, number one, you ought to have access to a, 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 a concordance. Strong's is good. Um, BDAG is better. BDAG is kind of hard to get a hold of. Um, I've got it on my Logos Bible software. Um, but you should have a concordance that'll tell you the, the general meaning of the words. As I said, Strong's is okay. Uh, you should have a Manners and Customs. You can find them online. Just go type in Manners and Customs. There's a handful of good ones. And they are usually set up by going through the Bible. So when you're in um, when you're in Matthew 12, you go to Matthew 12 in the Manners and Customs, and it will discuss the things you find in Matthew 12 that deal with Manners and Customs from their day. You may even want to get a couple of them. Um, the, the Haley's Bible Handbook. It's laid out the same way. When you're when you're going over a passage, you're wondering what does this passage mean. Then you go to Haley's Bible Handbook, and it goes over the things that are there. So these are these are the basic tools. Back in the day, when we did not have, we couldn't look up anything on computers. We had libraries. I still got remnants of my library that's here. I got part of my library that's back over at the church. But these were keys that we had to have to be able to really study the Bible. Then we had commentaries. Matthew Henry commentary, the pulpit commentary. Um, on the book of John, I had um, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary in the book of John and Romans. I have, um, and I got it right here, Barnhouse's, um, a commentary on the book of Romans. So you can do that through Blue Letter Bible. You can go to the tools and then go to the commentaries and you have um, David Guzek's commentary is there, Matthew Henry's commentary is there. And now you can dive in and start to look at what scholars and other people say about that particular thing. You're gonna get you're gonna get people that you like to go to to see if, if you can find anything on that topic <clears throat> that you're gonna be able to look up and see. So um, hopefully that's helpful, Abishag. But yeah, I don't know of any guided Bible study. It's just a skill that you're gonna pick up in time, get those basic tools, and then start diving in. And um, you know, try to start to really try to get a, a good understanding as to what's being said. All right. We have another question from uh, Sharon. Sharon says, question, scripture written to and specifically directed to the Israelites. Are we in error if we use them to apply to ourselves? Example, Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, yes. We, now, passages like Jeremiah 29, 11 can be, extremely encouraging. And there's some other passages that are like Jeremiah 29, 11 that can be, I'm, I'm going to get there, by the way. Let me just take some time to, to find this. Um, 29, 11. All right. So there are the passages that can be really encouraging. And then when you say to someone, well, you can't really take that for yourself. Like they may be going through something and they take an Old Testament passage that is meant for Israel and they apply it to themselves. And you say, well, you can't take that. That's not for you. Maybe you're not being, maybe at that point, it's not time to be that exact. Maybe at that point, you want to be encouraging towards them. And I always ask the question, can you rebuild a passage to, to speak to you with other passages that are right? So let's, let's take a look at this at Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's see if we can rebuild this as promises to you and me living in today, rebuilding it from passages that would be for us, okay? So God says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. So does God think thoughts towards us? Yes. So we can rebuild that. God thinks of us. God interacts with us. Then it says, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. So does God want good for us? Well, Romans um, 8.29. All things are 828. All things work together for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
So yeah, we can, we can say that God is doing good in our lives. Even when something looks bad, God's doing it for our good. Or even when something is bad or even evil, God is, is going to use that for our good to give uh, you an expected end. Does God have an end for us, a, a purpose in our lives? And I think we can say that. Then shall you call upon me and shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. Um, so Jesus said, call out upon the Lord and he'll answer you. And you seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So I think that these when you can rebuild them, then it's good. Um, if I, I let me try to go back to my Bible here because I want to. That's the that's the uh, King James, and um, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and just get rid of this here. I'm, I'm going to reopen my Bible on here. All right, there we go. And I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to uh, see if I can use that because I want to read this in another version. Um, because uh, I think there's another another version that can help a little bit better on Jeremiah 29 11. So let me go ahead and get there. Jeremiah 29 11. All right. So um, let's go ahead and look at this. Let me go ahead and put this uh, down, Sharon. Thank you. Um, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray for me. So I think that this one can be rebuilt. Um, there's going to be real sticklers who are going to say, well, it's not a promise to you. But if all of the aspects of this promise can be rebuilt for us out of passages to us, then we can say that this is true for us. Was this was promise made to Israel? Yes. Um, there are passages that are given to Israel where God talks about wanting them to prosper. And, and people take that and they bring it to themselves. So does God want me to prosper? Well, spiritually for sure, but financially as people take it, not necessarily. Maybe, maybe not. So there are certain things you can't end up rebuilding. All right, thank you, Sharon. That's a, that's a good question though. All right, um, so Kay says, um, at the rapture, the scripture speaks of the dead in Christ will rise and those alive at the time will meet him in the air. If these people are dead in Christ, how are they in Christ and not in heaven? They are in heaven. So um, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to go there. I think it starts in verse 13. So let me go there. Yep. So let me just go ahead and put this up. Um, okay. Thank you. Good question. So um, okay says, uh, or the, the Bible says, okay? Okay, I already asked. Um, let me go ahead and put this up for you. But I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, meaning died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep. So coming with him are the, the, the spirits, the consciousness, the souls of those who have fallen asleep, who have died. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So they're with him. So he brings them with him when he returns. And it says those who sleep in Jesus. This is the resurrection. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are, are, are dead, who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their bodies will rise and meet them in the air. This is the same event that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, where he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. We're not all going to die. But some are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. It's the resurrection. So at the resurrection, we are going to be reunited with our bodies in the resurrection, but God's going to bring with us our souls to put back into our bodies, which will now be this corruptible is put on incorruptible, this mortal is put on immortality, and we are like Christ. All right? So um, pretty, pretty straightforward, okay? Um, that Jesus brings the souls with them and raises their bodies and brings them back together again. If I die before the Lord returns, then my body will be buried. I will be in the presence of God. When he returns, he will bring me back with him. And then in the resurrection, he will bring my body up and I will be united back together with my body and I will put with this actual body, but it will be incorruptible. It will be immortal and it'll be like Christ, like his body was. All right. Thank you. Uh, okay. I appreciate that. 
Uh, and so uh, we have a question from uh, Steve and Katie. Hello, my son, five, is asking about heaven and hell. Recommendations on explaining this to a child? Ah, um, yeah. Um, I would, I would use the term separation from God. So, remember the, the, the word hell in the Bible, Sheol in the Old Testament, which is the place of the grave, doesn't necessarily mean a place of torment. Um, the word Tartarus in the New Testament is a place where demons were held. That's translated hell. The name Gehenna was a valley that was going to become the valley of slaughter that the children of Israel sacrificed children in, and it became known as a place of judgment. And it's called hell. And and um, so so in explaining to a child, I would say that if you decide you want to live with Jesus, then you can, and you can go and live with him. If you decide you don't want to live with Jesus, then you don't have to, but there are going to be consequences to that. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that the flames of hell were not literal, but it talked of the, con the, burning, um, the burning sinful heart of someone who's rejected God, that just is depart apart from God, doesn't want to be with God. He said the, the gates of hell are locked from the outside. And so I would use some of these terms. Um, it's, it's torment, not torture. So the Dante's, the Dante's Inferno idea of hell, that God has some chamber down in the middle of the earth that he's going to torture people in forever and ever, burn their skin off of them forever and ever, it's just got to go away. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you, you say, well, what about the passage where the worm never dies and the, 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 the fire never goes out? Well, that's a quote from the Old Testament. And, and when you look at a quote from the Old Testament, you got to go back to the quote. You got to look at the quote. And in the quote, it says, and they looked upon their corpses where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. And so he was talking about corpses at that point. Jesus uses that to speak of the torment. The man in Luke 16 is in torment and not torture. And so I would be really careful not to draw a picture of God torturing people, but people are separated from God and in their separation, they are now tormented. All right? Um, we never want to do away with the idea of resurrection, judgment, and punishment. We know that, that these are all biblical. God's going to resurrect the living and the dead, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. He's going to judge all people, and then there will be punishment for the sin that was committed. And that punishment seems to be the torment of separation forever and ever and ever. Um, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce, and he does address hell in that book, and I think that that would be helpful, Steve and Katie, all right? Um, that's a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic to teach on. Uh, it's a heavy topic to, uh, it's a heavy topic to bring up to a five-year-old, all right? Um, so, Joellen, I'm just going to answer this one quickly, and I'm going to wrap things up here. Um, is it possible that Melchizedek is uh, be the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 7, 1 through 5? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that the connection to Christ is strong, but I don't see any connection to the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll, I'll take a look at it, Joellen. Again, I don't have time right now because we're at the end of our Q&A. Um, I'll take a look at it and see if there's anything that, that could pop out there thinking, could this possibly be the Holy Spirit? But I don't think so. He brings bread and water. Um, he blesses Abraham. Jesus becomes a priest by the order of Melchizedek. So I see the connection there between Jesus and Melchizedek, um, not the Holy Spirit. But I'll take a look, all right? And maybe there'll, maybe there'll be something there. So um, we're at the end of our Bible study now. Uh, we have a service tonight. We're going to be talking about David and Saul. We're going to talk about this distressing spirit again. Um, but we're going to also be talking about why Saul rebelled and what that's all about. And we're going to learn how we should not rebel and be disobedient. 
So a good study tonight, our second in in our series on the life of David. Um, and I hope that you can join us for it. Starts at six o'clock, which is an hour from now. That's the service. And uh, the teaching starts at about 625-ish or so. All right. So God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Um, love him with, um, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Fulfill the law and the prophets, and God will move in your life. All right. So God bless you guys. We will see you um, later on. I'm out. Love you. God bless you.